Welcome back to the Shift Control Podcast. My name is Paul McAnallen. Um, and we're back in the studio after a little bit of a break for the summer. Um, today's episode is um, on the subject of mindfulness. I had mentioned before that I was going to get a chance to do a podcast on mindfulness and that has just happened. I'm very lucky to have had 30 minutes in the company of um, a guy called Frank Liddy. And Frank is... Um, a mindfulness practitioner. Um, he has been uh, involved in the voluntary mental health sector for over 25 years. Um, he's a co-founding director of the Belfast Mindfulness Centre and he works out of the um, AWARE organisation in Belfast. Um, I met Frank about, I don't know, but maybe, maybe a year ago. I was working um, with the senior management team at uh, AWARE, which was then called AWARE Defeat Depression, and Frank was holding a mindfulness course, six-week mindfulness course. Um, a very interesting guy, um, just a real, um, a really good person who's uh, very able to communicate the benefits of mindfulness. And I think we had 30 minutes in this podcast, and I wish it was two or three hours, because um He's uh, depth and breadth of uh, knowledge and experience in this sector that is not done justice uh, in half an hour. Um, a few things I just wanted to mention um, to tee up before you listen to the conversation I had with Frank is that um, mindfulness has become very, very uh, popular. Um, it's almost like a, a hipster middle class thing, like along with yoga and beards. Um, but there's a lot more to it than that. Um, some of the benefits in business are self-evident and we cover that off. What we don't talk about is the benefits of mindfulness for those people who suffer from anxieties or depression. Um, and the organization that Frank works with in Belfast, um, their web address is aware-ni.org. Um, I mentioned it in, in the podcast there. They're the only mental health charity in, in the North working exclusively for those with depression and bipolar disorder. Um, so there are two sides to, to, to where mindfulness can benefit. This conversation is about the professional side of it, how embracing mindfulness at work can uh, add value to, your, to you as an individual or to your team or however you want to strip it. But um, the benefits are, are very evident. Um, we referenced some books um, and I'm just going to uh, give you the names of those books now and maybe again at the end um, because as I say it's a very fleeting um, 30 minutes and I really wish I could have had a lot longer with Frank and hopefully I can get him back in the studio and we can go again um, for uh, yeah for just hours and hours of very very interesting um, science and psychology together so I hope you enjoy the next 30 minutes um, I'll uh, leave you now and um, let you get on with enjoying the podcast and I will reference those books and other resources at the very end of uh, the, the session so um, I hope you really enjoy it because um, it's fairly valuable stuff. Thank you. So um, Frank, uh, I'm going to say good morning because it's still morning. Um, we've been trying to arrange this for a while now um, so I'm really delighted that you're, you've come along um, to the studio. Uh, so we we talked a bit beforehand about about mindfulness, the word mindfulness, um, to give people an, a your understanding of what it means. Um, start off with that, and we work our way through if that's okay. Good way to start. Yeah. So after you. 
Well, for me, uh, the word mindfulness first came around in the mid-70s uh, whenever I was doing some work with a guy called Ian McCreeve uh, Ben Birdman, uh, who was teaching counselling and psychotherapy at Queen's University. And he introduced me to uh, a great guy called Bessel van der Kock. And he's the chap who coined the phrase, the body keeps the score. So I'm sure you know, like Eamon did a lot of work with trauma. Van der Kock did a lot of work with trauma. It was one of those sort of words mindfulness that sort of like spoke to me, jumped out at me. You know, you read it. At that particular time, there was gestalt therapy, there was transactional analysis. And I see this thing called mindfulness and, you know, I just wanted to explore what it was. So put a year, well, put a year on that. What, what when was that? What? 78. 78, okay. Yeah, okay. so we're talking, uh, we're talking like late 70s. You know, Belfast was still booming, but not in the in the best sort of way for yeah. women. But, you know, the troubles were on and uh, there was a lot of trauma. But, you know, the great Eamon McCreeve, you know, always said that that was the word, that was the taboo topic, but nobody really spoke about trauma. So anyway, when I read in, sort of came across this word called mindfulness, I then found that, you know, when I read into Gestalt, that the great Fritz Perls, the, the sort of the daddy of Gestalt, you know, practiced Zen, and then there was a Zen connection to mindfulness. And then when I read into other people as well, great sort of people in the world of counseling and psychotherapy, it appeared to be that all these sort of threads was going to this word called mindfulness and this other word called Zen. So then when I read, we got then to explore mindfulness, that took me on to another pathway, and that pathway then also led me to Zen because, you know, you know yourself, mindfulness would be a core practice of Zen. So, you know, over the years with good teachers, what I've discovered is, you know, whenever we have sort of, you know, spoken with people about, you know, mindfulness, what is it? So we have mindfulness, the word mindfulness, we have shamatha, we have shikantaza, we have vipassana. But really what they all seem to mean, you know, is insight. Insight, intuition, awareness. So for me, whenever I sort of think of mindfulness today, you know, what comes to my mind, and I'm sure you must remember too, you know, explaining mindfulness for me to, to, to Joe Bloggs would be to talk about vuja day. Yeah. So we all know what deja vu is, that sense of being here before. Yeah. So we take, you know, I've been here before, deja vu, turn it on its head into Bougia Day, and we've got you know, the opposite. I've never been here before. You know, right here, right now, this is the first time that you and I are here in the studio in doing this program. So this is new and this is exciting. You know, and when we look at the world of Zen, you know, in relationship to mindfulness, then what we discover is, you know, that you know, it's beginner's mind. And they say that in the beginner's mind, there are many opportunities. In the expert's mind, there are a few. So something about the practice of mindfulness for me allows us to sit with that uh, sense of not knowing, yeah? that sense of being vulnerable. But most of all, the beauty is when we come to our senses, we get a great sense of being comfortable with our own skin. Mm -hmm. Because there's always a sort of idea, uh, again, for me, you know, great sort of psychologists and psychotherapists that they talk about it, and that is there's always this, this sense that you know, everybody knows what to do except you, yeah? You know, and there's also this other sense which psychology talks about today, it's like the imposter syndrome. I mean, again, you know, that, you know, I'm doing this, but I'm not doing it right, yeah? So let me, I just, yeah. I'm, gonna, I'm gonna come back on something there because um, for me, one of the key things you talked about is, is insight, right? And this is going back to 1978, so that's 40, almost 40 years ago. Um, but you've thrown in words, um, into that that I think might frighten some people and they would have frightened me too so you talk about psychotherapy and psychoanalysts and different and meditation and there's a little bit of um, there's almost uh, uh, it's not a, a, 
a disconnection, but it's hard for some people to see the benefit of that when those words come with certain connotations. Okay, so I to, to tee this up for people that are listening. I um, first met Frank. Um, I think it was last summer. Was it last summer? We did a a mindfulness course um, in Belfast, and I was talking to friends of mine about it. And the for the for the uninitiated, and you mentioned the word mindfulness, the eyebrows raise. What's, what are you doing that for? Oh, there's something wrong. Um, or you have a big problem, or um, da, 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 da. and as you talk about um, the Gestalt thing, and you talk about cognitive behavioral therapy, and then um, psychodynamic, and everybody thinks, oh, that poor fellow, something wrong with him, you know. Um, maybe that is true, but they, the, the, the idea is that, that the word insight gives me clarity, and then sometimes you, you talk about psychology and psychotherapists, it scares people a bit. Why has it taken so long for people to start embracing it? Because 40 years later, it's only now becoming very much into the public domain. Well, I would say that the, the delay, you know, because we're in this sort of the world today of the evidence-based approach, and there still has to be evidence there. So go back, uh, not too far, to like 1994, there was a group of Italian uh, neuroscientists doing soft work, you know, with a monkey, right? Uh, and what they discovered was, you know, they were sort of had the, the monkey wired up to the MRI scans, etc. And what they're doing is looking at what happens whenever the monkey receives the nut. So then it came lunchtime, uh, this is a true story, and the scientists you know, left the room, all but one. And the guy who came in behind licked a nut, right, and placed a nut in his mouth. And the monkey's brain lit up as if the monkey had taken the nut. Yeah. So what these guys, and that's not too long ago, 1984, what these neuroscientists then discovered was, what they discovered was what they call mirror neurons. Now that had also been around for a while by a guy called William James, a great psychologist, going back about 100 years ago, right? Whenever he talked about these mirror neurons, but again, the evidence wasn't there. And I would say the success of mindfulness today goes back nearly 30, 35 years by a great, uh, a great guy called John Cabotson. And John Cabotson was based in Massachusetts, right? Uh, he worked in a hospital and he worked with people who were experiencing severe and enduring chronic pain. Cabotson, you know, discovered the practice of mindfulness through Zen. So, you know, it's a core Buddhist practice. And then he brought it to the attention of his director in the hospital about he'd like to sort of apply the mindfulness to the patients, believing that it would alleviate their suffering. At that time, you know, 30 odd years ago, that director was very sort of radical in his approach and said, okay, go ahead. And I believe, if the story is true, is that, you know, where they needed the practice was in the basement next door to uh, the, the heating room or the furnace. Anyway, you know, over a period of eight weeks, you know, there was dramatic changes, right? There was a great benefit in the practice of mindfulness for those people who had exhausted all forms of medication. Mm. And they'd gone down every single cul-de-sac regarding medication. So they had that sort of that hopeless place, right? That helpless place. So Cabotson introduces the uh, the mindfulness practice and, you know, suffering is alleviated. So it appears to be, for me, that, you know, the credit should go to the likes of our great friend Cabotson, right, and the work that he done. And also Mark Williams and a guy called John Teasdale, you know, who are across the Golden Pond, they're based in England. And especially Williams worked around with people who were experiencing depression. Teasdale the same. Whenever they heard about the great, you know, work that Kamsen was doing, they flew across and they were taught the practice of mindfulness. They then returned and they worked with that sort of cohort group. And you know, to cut a long story short, it didn't work. Mm. Williams then got back on to Cabot's end, said, you know, this is not working for us, you know, 
what's going on. And trumpets in reply to uh, Williams, are you practicing? Okay. So the truth was, and Mark Williams talks about this, his reply was that he wasn't. And our good friend trumpets in says, you are in Hines, you're sort of the principal. So then Williams talks about this here, that you know, through his own practice and developing his practice, there's something then about how then we can deliver that to others. This then connects with our good friends, you know, with the mirror neurons, because the mirror neurons then feed into our empathy. So when I talk about insight, I talk about another, you know, which is a fascinating area, and that's called your vagus nerve. So the vagus nerve, it talks about what they call vagal tonation. And that vagal tonation is when you go into a room and you know there's something happening, but you just can't put your fingers on it, mm. right? It's that gut feeling, that gut feeling. So that's what we're talking about. So we're talking about the practice of mindfulness. Then, you know, uh, through evidence-based practice with the likes of neuroscientists, Richie, Don Goldman, Richie Davidson, and a, and a host of others. Yeah, uh, Professor the emotional, emotional intelligence thing with Goldman, yeah. 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 And and with our good friend, Professor Paul Gilbert, said speaking about the compassionate mind. I mean, that's how, for me, it sort of has rocketed because of neuroscience. Right? So we take parts of neuroscience to the side and we look at, we strip it right down to the basic practice and we know today the basic practice is today as it was like a couple of thousand years ago. Right? The difference with you know, the success of mindfulness today is because of the likes of neuroscience, they can turn around and say, this is what happens whenever you practice. Yeah. So we just before we, we hit the go button, um, we were talking about how you can apply this to, to people who are uh, unwell and people who are well. And there's a lot of the self-help books and there's a lot of people making a lot of money out of all this sort of stuff. Uh, most recently, I read a book by a guy called Ryan Holiday. It's, it's not been published recently. I think it's been out for, I'm just going to check uh, the publishing date. Uh, it's not relevant necessarily, but um, in the headline of the book is The Obstacle is the Way. And um, there's a quote from uh, one of the Stoics, Marcus Aurelius, who talks about um, uh, the impediment to action advances action, what stands in the way becomes the way. And yeah, that's probably getting a little bit deep, but it's very, very sim simple. You know, um, a lot of people tend to face an, a problem and it becomes a massive problem. And mindfulness can help deal with those issues. Mm -hmm. Mindfulness can help you uh, reposition your thinking, reposition your actions then as a consequence to that. Um, it's not as like it's a fascinating space, you know. And I think that I the reason I wanted to talk to you about it is because I think the benefits for individual performance and team performance from a professional context, mindfulness can add a serious value to a high performing team that are working under pressure all the time. Mm -hmm. That everything's a deadline. That an email will ding every two seconds. The phone will ring, and people talk about composure, being cool, calm, collected. You have to practice that. Exactly. Yeah. And then for me, uh, through practice, the benefits of practice would be, you know, as you know, uh, my tutor, my teacher, a great guy, Elizabeth of Belfast, a guy called Paul Haller, uh, is based in San Francisco. He'll be back in Belfast next month, late August. But, you know, what Paul would say is that the practice of mindfulness breeds resilience. Right? So what they talk about, they talk about like sort of uh, regarding practice, they talk about, you know, that there's two brains. Yep. There's the lower brain, which would be the fight, the flight, the freeze, the collapse, right? And then there's the upper brain. And the upper brain would be like the cortex, the prefrontal cortex, which feeds into what's called the executive function. But also then we have these guys here, you know, uh, for the listener, we're just describing the amygdala. And the amygdala is a sort of a Greek word which translates into, you know, walnut. Yeah? So it's about the size of a walnut. 
But what we now know is that, that the amygdala is the guy who fires up, a bit like a buzz of thought, so what we sort of panic and panic and panic and like, but you know, the amygdala always fires up the fight, the flight, the freeze, the collapse. Yeah. But through the practice of mindfulness, then what happens is the cortex becomes denser. Yeah. So what happens is the you know the lower brain then becomes contained. Yeah. yeah. And with the containment then of the lower brain, then what happens is the breeding of the resilience allows us a good description I was told recently was it allows us then to join the dots. Yeah. We're then able to join the dots. So we don't get caught up into uh you know, fill in the, the blank spaces. Self-talk is what it is, isn't it? Really, there's a lot of self-talking on. Just for again, the the um, I, I know a little bit about this, um, only because I've read about. I was fascinated about uh, Goldman and his emotional intelligence and the management of your emotions and um, the way that they they kind of frame that is that you have got the fight, fright, fight, flight, freeze, and collapse emotions uh, based on the life of a caveman. And uh, over the thousands of years, nothing has really changed. We haven't got five or six different versions of that. It's just the same fight, flight, freeze, or collapse. That's what you get the white knuckles from. That's whenever your back or your neck starts to get really tense. You start feeling something in your stomach. It's a, a physiological reaction to an emotional experience, mm -hmm. right? And uh, today we're sitting, there's a bing, hear that? That's an email from me I got a reply to. There's a phone going off somewhere. There's a whole lot of stuff going off. That the caveman didn't have to do with all he had to do was pretty much find a place to sleep light the fire eat and avoid the dinosaurs it's a very very simple life and now we have got uh, 1300 brands trying to uh, sell to you from the minute you wake up in the morning you've got to put the alarm clock off you listen to the bad news and it just uh, accelerates the road down to negativity you switch on the news in the morning you read the news you go to nolan all that negativity can reset your body for the rest of the day and uh, mindfulness is a, is a yeah, mindfulness builds up resilience. Yes. Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. Yeah. And not only does it build it up, you know, I mean, Paul says it breeds resilience. Yeah. So if you can sort of imagine, you know, that here we have, you know, a mindfulness practitioner right, who's receiving all this sort of stimuli, this sort of stressors, as you're talking about, you know, the everyday stuff. I mean, I no disrespect to Nolan, but, you know, in coming in that sort of downward spell, right? And you Plenty have, of disrespect to <laughs> Nolan, but come ahead. Then we, have, then we have the other practitioner, right, who doesn't practice, yeah? So then what, what appears to happen is, right, so they get the same stimuli, but this guy here, the non-practitioner, flips the lid, flips the lid, flips the lid, where this guy here, you know, has a completely different response. So it appears to me that what happens is that through the practice of mindfulness, our internal antennae that goes up for the fight, flight, freeze, collapse, that tends then to come down. Yeah. And we go from that sort of fight, flight, freeze, collapse into what we've known as less than digest. Yeah. Go back then into the gut. So for me, you know, uh, it comes back to being able to join the dots. So the same stimuli is coming to both guys, the practitioner, who's steady as she goes, you know, who's able to join the dots and sort of see for what it is. And the other one is, of course, is misinterpreting situations and therefore flip the lid because the amygdala is definitely looking out for, you're talking about the distractions. So the amygdala obviously looks for everything appears to be the dinosaur. Yeah. yeah. Then that feeds into our fight, flight, freeze, collapse. These guys here, the practitioner, is able to join the dots and to sort of see that it's not a dinosaur, it's a chihuahua, right? Yeah. But whereas our other buddy, you know, is flipping the lid yeah. because the chihuahua is the dinosaur. So <clears throat> I, I can apply some uh, a relationship professionally to that. Okay, so in the context of sales and you're making, um, you're prospecting and you're making phone calls and you're leaving messages and you're sending out emails and you're trying to promote your business and trying to get your people, trying to bring yourself from the mind to important people who can help grow your business. 
and you're not getting emails back and you're not getting any response back and your self-talk immediately starts going, I know he's in the office. I don't know why. He's not, is there something I've said? It must be something I've done. Maybe he doesn't like me. And before you know it, you've got this, what they call ghosting. It's, you're, you're let, you should just let these people drift off, but you can't because your head's got all this self-chat. When you start building up a degree of self-chat, it will put you off making any other calls. Any calls you make will be inefficient and it has a detrimental effect on how you approach your selling. So if we were to believe that everybody in life is in business is a, is a seller, you can see the knock-on effect that that would have corporately, even for startup, small business, or for the bigger businesses where they haven't got the resilience yes. to, it's okay, he get back to me when he's ready. I've got all things to do whilst all that's all going on. It's easy for me to say that now because I would suffer from that a lot when you send out emails and you don't get replies. It's it, it, um, You start thinking weird things and it's about being in control. Um, I talk about the business side of this, Frank, um, without giving any names, but you're working with a lot of corporates right now. Yes, indeed. Okay, so what what just based on this and to give a sales pitch out there, why would why would some business come to you? What's what what value can you add to an organisation with mindfulness? Well, first of all, I would say uh, the practice of mindfulness would be probably the best form of self care at the moment. You know, uh, so you know people who then practice mindfulness, right? They'll then discover through their self care and their interpersonal relationships with others tend to blossom and flower as well. So we'll go back to the game, you know, the join the dots. You know, we start to then. I believe, you know, we're starting then to, to see the best of others. You know, you were talking there earlier on about, uh, you know, the ghosting, etc., or the catastrophizing. I mean, the great Richie Davidson, another great neuroscientist, what he talks about, he says, it's like we have a Velcro brain. And the Velcro brain, of course, holds on to all the bad experiences. Yeah? But with the practice of mindfulness, what happens is that then tends to thaw, right, that Velcro, right, side of things. And it goes back to what Davidson talks about, which is, you know, again from the Zen word, is that beginner's mind. So it's not as if, like, you know, this has happened before and this will happen again. It's what's happening right here, right now. Mm. Yeah. So the practice of mindfulness, to me, would be one of the greatest anchors, right, to being present right here, right now, and to treat this moment as for the first time, and not only that, but to treat this moment for the first time with the respect, with the dignity, with the welcoming, with the compassion, with the kindness and with the softness, you know, every time, yeah. And I would say that, you know, from people, you know, in the corporates you know, and other sort of areas as well, that what they're discovering too is that they become softer and kinder and gentler. Yeah? Mm-hmm. So there's a kindness that emerges, you know, whereas sometimes, as you know, within those sort of, you know, uh, areas, that what happens is people are operating on short fuses, yeah? short fuses which are taking place outside the workplace and then, is exacerbated within the workplace. So it's something about the practice of mindfulness then is able to remove the short fuse. There's a lovely line when you talk about it's the best form of self-care. Rand Holiday um, has a line which he uses to describe uh, meditations of Marcus Aurelius. He says, one of the most effective forms of overcoming every negative situation. You know, and uh, I think you, you talk about the more contemporary uh, psychologists and Zen masters and that. You go back to Marcus Aurelius and Seneca and the Stoics, and they have these very simple sentences. So they say things so easily, and the big paradox with Marcus Aurelius is that he was a Roman emperor who had everything, and he didn't need to be benevolent. In fact, it wasn't part of the DNA of anybody who's in power. And please take note, anybody who's in power around here. Um, you don't. It's not in their DNA to be benevolent of yourself. 
Andrew Ollard. Yeah. And um, it's a fascinating reading. I, I, there's a few things that I'd say people should read. I would say the Meditations of Marcus Aurelius, just to get into it, would be really good. Okay. Um, the Obstacle of the, uh, is the Way is another one, is, is a fascinating one. Um, I had asked Frank a question uh, some time ago about, Frank mentioned Zen. So you think of Zen, you think of Buddhism, you think of Buddhism, and over here, the last thing you need is another religion to come into, or faith to come in to, to challenge the existing uh, paralysis that we endure. Um, so Christian Zen... Uh, what's his name Robert Kennedy? Robert Kennedy right so I got this book by Robert Kennedy which kind of says it's all right to practice mindfulness and to be at one with yourself even if you're whatever you, regardless of what your background is okay so yeah. just to try and put people off that maybe listen if they're or to not put people off if they're listening to it and think well this is some another kind of religion or whatever what's your perspective on that well again I would sort of suggest when it comes to reading they maybe read the likes of the full catastrophe living by John Kabat-Zinn because when we're talking sort of mindfulness what we deliver right, uh, through AWARE, and that would be that you know it's a secular program. You know, it's a secular way. And I think you know when we look at the next of good friends within neuroscience, I mean, they can also you know uh, rubber stop that as well. That this practice is for everybody, you know, irrespective of color, class, creed, background. I mean, and any for me, I would believe that anybody who practices can only improve and develop the path that they're on. Yeah, I think that, I mean, that's really important because um, I first undertook the mindfulness course because I, I was doing a bit of work with the AWARE, which is the organization that Frank is aligned with, um, some work with the senior management team. And this the course was presented to me in such a way that I can't not do this because I've worked with them. And I think it's like to become more intimate with what they do as an organization, you have to get involved. So I went along to uh, the mindfulness six-week session in a, in an hotel in Belfast, very very open-minded and very in a really good place mentally before I went in, and I came out in a better place. But some of the people that were there were from um, all different kinds of backgrounds. They either worked with troubled people, they were evidently coming from situations that they may not have been happy with, and they wanted to improve it. But there's a real cross-section. So it is, you say, black-white. Regardless, it's not. Know, gender specific it's not religion specific it's nothing but for anybody who's interested in having a better headspace yes yeah. i mean and i think uh let's again go back to sort of i'm really sort of singing the praises of our friends in neuroscience yeah that what we know now is you know, that everybody can practice i mean so it's not a question that nobody cannot practice you know sometimes we always always look at for you know can that person practice or what about someone who experiences that could they practice what you've got to do nowadays is go to NICE guidelines, that's uh, NICE, the National Institute for Clinical Excellence, you know, who endorse mindfulness practice. And the evidence is there, the research is there, right, for like a broad, 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 broad spectrum, right, of difficulties, right, that people experience. So for me, what I would say is, you know, that all mindfulness practice, no matter where we are on our journey, you know, whenever we begin, it, for me, it's about beginning again, and beginning again, and beginning again. I think what happens is sometimes, you know, people then who don't practice get caught up in that sort of rut, that, you know, that sort of groundhog day, you know, oh, here I am again, oh, here I am again, you know. So we know through our friends in neuroscience right, that, you know, we're not hardwired, yeah? that through the practice of mindfulness, then what happens is, you know, the neurons fire and rewire, they fire and rewire, and then the firing and rewiring, guess what? New pathways emerge, mm -hmm. yeah? So, you know, in Gaelic, there's a great uh, saying, which I don't know in Gaelic, but it 
translates in English as fortune presents gifts not according to the book. Fortune presents gifts not according to the book. And there's something for me about the practice of mindfulness that what happens is whenever these pathways emerge, right, we start to see things differently. Yeah, we start to see things differently. And I remember telling you before, Paul, way back about, well, I was told this way back in uh, about 1990 something. And I remember sharing with you when I, when I met you. You know, my teacher told me that I have two lives. Mm. He says, remember Frank, he says you've got two lives. Of course, being from Belfast, I wanted to know when they get my second life. And he told me, he says, you get your second life when you realize you've only one. Mm. Yeah. So for me, the practice of mindfulness would be, you know, bring about that, you know, awareness that, you know, this is it. Right here, right now, is it. So here I am drinking a cup of tea. So it's whenever I'm drinking a cup of tea, I'm drinking a cup of tea. I'm not thinking about the House of Fraser. I'm not thinking about, you know, yesterday. Yeah. There's something about through the practice we start to engage with our own lives. We start to step into our own lives. And in doing so, you know, we're able then to experience this moment in a particular way. In a particular way. So for me, the practice of mindfulness would be, you know, the art of falling awake. You know, for us then to be able to come to our senses, to see, hear, smell, touch and taste. But most of all, would be the gut. Mm. So when bringing the mind home, I would say it's like bringing down that antennae, going from fight, flight, freeze, collapse, and then slowly waking up yeah, to our intuition. Because we do know what to do, we do know how to do it, and it's just do it. Yeah, that's um, I I know that uh, we're we're probably going to run out of time here, which is a bit unfortunate because I could I think it's a fascinating subject. I think it's one that's probably much maligned. Um, from uh, suffered from a bit of ridicule, uh, you know, comedically and all that sort of stuff. But who hasn't, I guess? Um, and I think that um, I certainly came out feeling really, really, um, certainly more aware of mindfulness and what what it can um, uh, what what it, what it can bring to the individual. But it's all about practice. You just can't do it once or twice. It's a bit like being disappointed that when you play golf once a year, they don't get any better. You have to invest time in it. Um, so there's a good time, the best time is to do it in the morning, you'd recommend? Oh, just a, it's just I, anecdotally, I know the answer to this. Yeah. How long do you spend meditating every day? I would say uh, roughly around an hour. Okay. I'd spend about an hour a day. Okay. Yeah. So that's um, the equivalent of going to mass. <laughs> you know, but somebody said that to me, yeah, yeah. somebody said that to me recently, um, that they just go to mass to gather their thoughts yeah. and so they go into mass to switch on instead of switch off and they're not listening to anything that anybody's saying just listening to themselves and just taking that time to be cool calm and collected and then deal with the stuff of the now rather than you know and in your business and people that are listening to this right now are probably like hey, that's really class Paul but I've got to go home now I've got to do something and hurry up and finish that and you know it's about actually knowing that what's happening right now is the most important thing because you can't do anything about what happened yesterday and who knows what's going to happen in about two minutes time um, it's really important to to apply that to your thinking. Well, what what a you know just for the listener. I mean, whatever I, I practice an hour, you know, in, uh, as you know, I'm a same student. You know, but for people who would say do the course, what I would suggest to them would be like 15, 20 minutes a day. Yep. And what we now know again through neuroscience is you know practice 15, 20 minutes a day, and within I think it's something like six hours of practice, you know, this guy the amygdala begins to shrink. Yeah. And therefore, you know. The dots begin to join, and we start to see things differently, and we start to hear things differently. Yeah. So just I'm 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 conscious of time here. We 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 could go on because this is this is a lifetime subject for you because you're students since the the seventies and so on. 
Um, the interesting thing that I would see is that you're talking more about the science of it, whereas I'm getting it more from the say the psychology side of it. And um, I'd be a man of proof too, to be honest. And I think if um, you know if you do need to um, join the dots yourself before you get involved, it's worth studying and worth considering. Are there any references online you would suggest people should go to to take a look? I think the first place, first protocol would be to go to a words website. Okay. Uh, and they'll find a beautiful uh, mindfulness piece. Okay, um, so I'm just going to try and find out what that uh, URL is. Anywhere else? Uh, after that there, I would go to mindfulnessbelfast.org. Okay. So the first one would be aware. Aware-ni.org is the aware, which is a uh, um, an organization, uh, it's the only mental health charity in the north working exclusively for those who suffer from depression or from uh, the bipolar disorder. Um, so it's a multifaceted organization, but there's a, they specialize in, in, in mindfulness. There's just a big picture of you in the middle there, Frank, for those yep. people who don't know who you are. There you are. There they are. <laughs> there they are. Um, so there's a couple of places. Um, what I'm going to do is um, I'm going to, uh, with this, go back to my website. My website shift shift-control.co.uk. And I'm going to leave uh, some resources in print uh, to accompany this uh, podcast so that you can refer to afterwards. If you're in business, I would say you need to look into this. If you're uh, a HR or you're in sales, this will add value to your thinking. It will certainly consolidate. Um, it will change the way you view yourself, and that's a good way to change the way you view your business. And I also think if you're uh, suffering from any anxieties and you think that you're sometimes getting stuff uh, letting it run away with you and getting out of control. The society we live in at the minute is a good example. A lot of people letting stuff uh, run away with them. Um, you could do worse than visiting some of these resources and following up on some of the books that I've mentioned as well. So, Frank, I'm going to say thanks very much because I know you're a champion. Frank's halfway down the studio corridor here getting away because another meeting. So, Frank, thank you very much. Thank that was really me. brilliant. So, thank um, you. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Bye. One of them was The Obstacle is the Way, which is... Um, a book by Ryan Holiday, Turning the Ancient Art of Turning Adversity to Advantage. Um, it's I'm just trying to tell you how old book that is. That was first published, I think, in yeah, 2015, so it was last year. And um, the other book is Marcus Aurelius Meditations. Um, it's a small book published by um uh Penguin. Um Tim Ferris is all over the Stoics, and he has recorded an audiobook of the letters uh, uh, from Seneca. So Marcus Aurelius is one entry point, the meditations. There's a book called The Chimp Paradox. I can't remember who that's by, but um, it's a it's a real head wrecker, but it's good if you can if you can bear with it. It's kind of good, and it gives a, a little bit more back into what Frank was talking about from the um, how the brain works and uh, emotionally and probably scientifically as well. Then um, the other book that Frank had recommended to me was um, Zen Buddhist Christian Buddhist by Robert Kennedy. I think that's um, the the name of it. It's actually called Zen Spirit Christian Spirit. I just had to go and check it there and um, by Robert E. Kennedy, the place of Zen in the Christian life. I think Robert Kennedy was a priest. So it just gives you a little bit of a balance. Um, uh, when it comes to thinking, is this uh, how's this going to work, and how does it sit against uh, my own spiritual or my own faith? Um, the website uh, that Frank had referred to is aware-ni.org and uh, mindfulnessbelfast.org.
um, .org as well, um, which is probably worth checking up on if you want to follow it up. I'm going to try and get Frank back for another session because I think he's got a, a depth and breadth of information that's just unparalleled. And um, if it's only prompted one or two of you to pursue this and find out more information, then it's been worthwhile. I think another couple of uh, sessions in the podcast might uh, increase that number. Thanks again for listening. Um, I'm going to be back again next week uh, with another podcast. If you want to follow me uh, on Twitter, it's shiftcontrol66. Um, website is shift-control.co.uk. And again, thanks for your time, and I'll catch up with you soon. Mm-hmm.